Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. We got one of those peeks behind the curtains today. We are talking to the author of podsqueeze.com, Ned, and how he's delivering this service to the world. Yeah, and it was really interesting. He gave us a, a real look at what's happening on the back end, something you don't often get with these applications. They just wave their hands and say Kubernetes and cloud a few times. But no, he he took us through what actual components he's using, why he why he is using those components and what things might look like in the future. Yeah, the future discussion was especially interesting because he's not sure today's architecture that works very well is going to scale infinitely or that it's going to be economically viable. Those are all considerations in his mind. So please enjoy this discussion with Tiago, the programming power behind PodSqueeze. Tiago, welcome to the Day 2 Cloud podcast. And introduce yourself to the audience, man. Who are you and what do you do? Thank you very much for the invitation. It's definitely an honor and a pleasure to be here. So yeah, my name is Tiago. I have a background in software development and DevOps as well. Actually, I started as a DevOps engineer in a company called Trivago, which is uh, very oh. similar to my name, Tiago Trivago. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I worked um, I worked as a DevOps. I learned a lot about the infrastructure side of, th of things and so on. Then I also worked a little bit as more typical backend developer you know, I did a little bit of PHP, a little bit of Java as well. Python is kind of my main language as well. Mm -hmm. uh, Golang. So I try to play around with a lot of different um, different languages. And yeah, so I worked for some time at Trivago. Then I moved to another uh, software company, a, a startup. We we're just starting out. And it was in the travel industry as well. So Trivago is a hotel conference and website. And this startup was also in the travel industry but then COVID hit, and of course, that this small startup with 15 employees kind of got crashed, completely crashed from one day to the other. And for a long time that I've been kind of pursuing my entrepreneurial uh, roots. So I thought, okay, this is the perfect time to kind of stop now this kind of corporate world and follow my passion and try something and try to become an entrepreneur. So, um, I, I, I don't know, time flies so fast, but I believe it was around, was 2020, 2021, where I decided to, yeah, go 100% on my projects. And since then, I've been building a bunch of um, small web products. And recently, I had some success with PodSqueeze, which I believe we'll be talking mostly about that one. And yes. this... Yeah, uh, and PodSqueeze is basically a tool that helps podcasters to repurpose their content using AI and ChatGPT. Oh yes, yeah. PodSqueeze is uh, is why I reached out to you. Well, you well you started it actually. I don't know if you know or not how exactly this got started, but PodSqueeze um, showed up as like a like a little blurb in my email box for one of the management emails I used to manage a bunch of the podcasts on the Packet Pushers Podcast Network. It's like. Hey, I'm Tiago. Uh, I wrote this thing called PodSqueeze. It does this cool stuff. And I was like, huh, interesting. And sure enough, it <laughs> does a lot of cool stuff, man, for people that are podcasting. And as I was using the, the, the tool, it made me wonder what all is going on on the back end. So now you gave a like a one sentence overview of PodSqueeze. Can you des describe the process like uh, like like PodSqueeze? I upload audio, or you pull the audio off of an RSS feed, and then you do a bunch of stuff. Or PodSqueeze does a bunch of stuff. Describe to people what PodSqueeze right. does so they can picture it, and then we're going to talk about how you do all that stuff. Sure. So 
the goal was to make it really, really simple to use. So the idea is that you go to PodSqueeze and then you upload your audio. Uh, you can also use your uh, RSS feed. And then it magically creates a bunch of assets, written assets that you can, um, you can repurpose and reuse. Um, so once you upload, then you will basically see a screen with a lot of loading squares and there, and you will read tweets, you'll read show notes, timestamps, quotes. We have many assets now, uh, keywords, etc. And then they will kind of magically appear as long with the full transcription of your uh, audio file. And then it's just a matter, you can actually tweak it a little bit. You can use GPT queries to tweak the contents. So you can, I don't know, ask it to, to write it in a style of a pirate, for instance. I don't know if that's your thing or not, <laughs> but whatever you can, you know, uh, for the ones that are familiar with GPT, you probably know what I'm talking about. And then you can simply just copy that text or download it as a text file. And uh, you can either start sharing it on your social media and repurposing that content. Or if you work as an agency, you can just send it to your clients. So that's roughly the, the whole process of a uh, pod squeeze. Quite simple. <laughs> but yeah. quite powerful. And it wasn't just that it was, you know, convenient or clever. It was like, oh, you know, nifty. No, it was more than that to me. It was that it worked really well. As in, I saw the assets that it was producing, suggested titles, quotes, oh, right. potential yeah. tweets, mm -hmm. uh, the summary, um, the timestamps of different segments that were uh, found within the podcast that it was listing going wow, this would save us an enormous amount of time and make the podcast so much richer for people that are consuming it if they want all of that. Plus a full transcription, of course. You get the full transcription in there yeah. as well. So just, uh, yeah, it really, because of what ChatGPT is bringing, you're putting an interface on it that's making it uh, you know, enormously valuable for the podcaster. I'm sorry, I'm waxing poetic. I'm selling your product and I don't even need to. That's just, I, that's really why I reached out to you because I no. thought it was so cool what you were doing. Please continue. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt you do. Yeah. One of the things that I really enjoyed, because I tried it out as well, um, was the fact that I could just plug in the RSS feed. I didn't have to go find the MP3 right. where I had stored it before it. And in that way, I could look and go, okay, this is the episode that I actually want to try this out with and see what it comes back with. And like Ethan mm -hmm. said, it comes back with a bunch of things. And you can also refine those results because you know, any AI or GPT interface is not going to get it right the first time or it's yeah. not everything. Yeah, definitely. So you have an opportunity to go, okay, can you just try to remix it a few ways? And then you could tweak it yourself a little bit too. So I like I liked all of those, those integrations and plugins, which makes me wonder what services is it using on the back end to do all of this magic? So let, let's dig into the architecture of, of pod squeeze a little bit. So um, what what services, or how did you select what services you wanted to use to build out PodSqueeze? Okay, so I, once, once I kind of moved out of being a, an engineer or a software engineer and started becoming like an entrepreneur, I had to put aside some of the ideas that I had and the, the conceptions that I had about building a product, right? So when you work for a bigger company, it's really important to have stability. It's really important to uh, have scalability. Whereas when you are an entrepreneur, you want to, it's more important to have something that you can build fast mm -hmm. and something that you can maintain being a solo founder or uh, the solo engineer of the team, right? 
so those were my main concerns and that's kind of the stack when I was looking for, for a stack to work with. I want something that I can iterate fast uh, and something that while I am asleep, I somehow have some assurance that things can somehow keep rolling. Uh, so that's what I was kind of um, looking for. And um, as well, actually, one thing that is also important, by the way, since I am a bootstrapper, so I don't have any investment. So I, actually, I'm building PodSquiz with a, with a co-founder, but he's, more, uh, he's a designer. So I'm more in the technical side. And uh, it's important to be cheap. It's important, especially when we are launching, we have no idea if this will work or not. We have no idea if we'll get uh, paying clients. So those were kind of the main things. It needs to be something that it's cheap, uh, easy to, to scale and, and to build, and something that would allow me to, to somehow sleep at night and know that everything is working fine. So I went for a more uh, cloud-based uh, solution. Uh, so I have a GCP on, on the back end, and for the front end, uh, GCP with, with Python, we can go more deep into that if you want. But, and then in the front end, um, we have it deployed on Net Netlify, and we basically use uh, Gatsby with React. Now, you said GCP, and, and everyone in the audience went, what? He didn't say AWS. Why GCP? <laughs> Why AWS? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I know. It's, it's, it's a very interesting question. So... Since the beginning, I think there's kind of two types of developers. There are developers that are very specific. They really want specific technology. And, you know, if, if you worked in the software company, you've, you've been or you at, at least watched some kind of arguments between whatever, like PHP and Python or uh, PHP and Java or AWS and GCP. Uh, it, it's funny. At some, at, at some point at Trivago, we actually had GCP. AWS, and then our own uh, cloud solution using Nomad. So at some point, everyone kind of advocates for their own. In my humble opinion, I think GCP and AWS are basically the same. And I know that this is very controversial, and I probably know a lot of people are like, what, I'm going to kill you? But for me, I mean, they have the same process. I've worked with both. Actually, I've worked with AWS. I liked it. And I worked with GCP. I liked it. I think the reason why I picked GCP is because my uh, database is um, Firebase. So it's uh, the real-time database from Firebase. Mm -hmm. And then I just wanted to keep everything within GCP bubble just to make it easier. I guess that, that was the, the reason. I, I don't know that you'd get much argument from us in all honesty about AWS versus Azure versus GCP versus any of the other cloud services you want to use because at their rudiments, if you just talk about fundamentals, they do tend to offer pretty much the same thing. And it's what ecosystem you're invested in, what has the combo of services you're looking at, does economics play into things, you know, and so on. So I was asking you kind of a loaded question because no, we don't actually yeah. default to AWS around here on day two cloud. It's more of a... It is the the one that if there's one you're going to pick, almost everybody seems to start with AWS, especially you in the indie hacker space. It does seem like the most common choice. So for mm. you to come to the table with GCP, it does it does beg the question why. And you gave a great example of uh, a great reasons for why. Uh, so I'll ask another obvious question then. Uh, Kubernetes is is Kate's involved in your deployment for any anything to do with Posquies? No. No, uh, no Kubernetes. Um, so basically, we just use uh, the GCP functions, which in AWS, I think they're called Lambda, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Um, so it's not the most elegant solution, I have to say. Probably not the most scalable solution. 
but I just put all my backends into a main file and kind of split it between a couple of functions. Uh, each function has its own um, purpose and I just deploy it. So my backend language, as I said, is Python. Uh, you can define your uh, pip file, your requirements, and you just deploy it. And it gives you a kind of an endpoint that you can just call, and I call that from the front end. And uh, so no Kubernetes, nothing like that. Again, I want something really simple to manage and uh, really simple to start. And Kubernetes is always this. It's not... It's it's a great tool, definitely for to scale uh, and for a more mature application. Yeah. But to start, you know, the the learning curve it's quite quite high as well. But I I know it a little bit already. But yeah, to yeah. set up everything and so on, it's just yeah. I would just waste yeah, I, too much time, and I couldn't afford that. I'm laughing because no one has ever come on day two cloud talking about Kubernetes about how simple it is. No one's ever said that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not surprised if simplicity was a goal that Kubernetes is not involved at this point. Yeah, yeah, definitely. definitely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even with the managed versions of Kubernetes that you would get, you know, GKE running out of the box, you still need to have a certain number of nodes running all the time, which is going to cost you some money. And you're still dealing with all of the deployment artifacts that you're necessary. For. Yeah. 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 So mm -hmm. If you can, yeah, if you can just do it through functions, you've almost adopted a serverless, uh, backend architecture you yeah. got functions and Firebase. Are you using any other, uh, GCP, uh, PaaS services to, to fill out what you need for the backend? So let me think I use the functions. Mm -hmm. I use the Firebase, so the real-time database, as uh, my database, and then I use Scheduler to run kind of cron jobs. Right. So okay. certain jobs that I need to repeat, I don't know, update accounts, uh, stuff like that, I use the Scheduler. Uh, so I think it's called cron or Cloud Scheduler from GCP. Mm -hmm. And I can just trigger one of the functions uh, using a cron tab. So. That's right, right. It. I believe I'm no. not forgetting anything. Yeah. Some of the functions are called by the front end and fire up when when that call comes in, and some of them run on a schedule. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so in that regard, you're controlling for cost by really utilizing things that only charge you when they're running. Uh, I'm not mm -hmm. sure what the what the cost structure is on Firebase, but I know with functions, it's yeah, you just pay each time the function fires, more or less. Yeah, correct. So to be honest, um, again, you, you, you do have a quite generous free tier, mm -hmm. uh, both for the functions and, and for Firebase, which, well, at least in my opinion, for everyone that is starting their own project, um, it's completely fine and you won't pay a thing until it really takes off. So that's, mm -hmm. again, one of the reasons why I decided to, to pick this stack. Uh, also with Netlify, which we just run it for free. You can run a full application for free. Um, so now that we are actually growing and now that we actually have some good traffic and, and uh, a lot of paying clients, now we are starting to see uh, the pricing. I need to learn more about that, to be honest. So far, I've been kind of, you know, GCP, they have like um, a billing monitoring that you can see how much you're paying. One thing that people told me before was that this can get really expensive really fast. So I'm kind of waiting for that and, and trying to manage that. It might be that in the future, we need to move to something a bit cheaper. 
For the real-time database, I believe you pay for the storage you have and then also for downloads. And GCP, as you said, is, so the functions is per, so when it runs, you pay. So I, I believe you have a great amount of time that it can run for free. And then after that, you just pay, I guess, some cents or something like this or half a cent. I, 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 don't, I really don't know the prices, but I've been monitoring it. So far, it's okay. Uh, we, can, uh, we can manage those. But yeah, it's definitely something if you think that you need a lot of traffic and you think that you'll have a lot of functions running, a lot of network, so downloads, et cetera, it's something that one should consider for sure. Yeah, that's typically what we've seen in terms of cost as things grow. Uh, the biggest cost is usually network egress. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Like, yeah. If, you're an application, if your application is very heavy on tra- data transfer leaving Google Cloud, then you could see that that cost ballooning as you have more and more customers because it's just more and more traffic leaving and you're being charged for as opposed to other things that don't scale quite as quickly. Yeah. So that's what I'm afraid of, actually. Uh, I also, when I when I do see my billing, I see that most of the uh, the costs go to towards that. Uh, and then I'm thinking, okay, what can we do? So I'm already, it's probably not going to be something that we'll focus in the next months, but yeah, I'm already kind of thinking about solutions that we can apply, maybe, maybe moving towards a more relational database or something like that. Um, but yeah, let's see. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get into some of the nitty gritty, Tiago, about what happens when uh, someone is using PodSqueeze. Now, for me, in my experience, the first thing that happened was PodSqueeze ingested a media file. I fed it RSS, picked the episode I wanted it to ingest, and it, and it did it. So, okay, what happens when that media file goes in? Does it land in memory? Does it go to disk somewhere? What happens? I guess before we start uh, describing a little bit more what happens with PodSqueeze, let me just say that it's, uh, this application is only two and a half months old. So I always get a little bit nervous when I... I have to explain the backend and everything to other developers because I always feel that developers sometimes kind of are judgy about it. So I just say, hey, there's a lot of things that we can improve. So the way it works is the following. We use two external APIs, okay? One is to transcribe the... So everything that is machine learning related, we don't do it from our side. So the, the transcription, we use a provider. So it's basically a REST API that we can call. And then we use um, GPT uh, from OpenAI to generate the assets. Once you, once you upload your file, uh, you can either use the RSS, uh, RSS feed. And if you use that, we download your file because um, from the link that it's in your RSS feed, uh, if you upload it, we just upload it. Oh, by the way, I, that's another service that I use from GCP. We just upload it to uh, Firebase storage. Uh, and we just keep it for a few, well, I guess a few hours because we just needed to have a place with a public available MP3 file or audio file that then we can send to our transcription API, okay? Right. Uh, So yeah, so once the transcription, so you you call the transcription API, you wait for for it to to do its magic, you get the result. Uh, The result is in... um, it's a text file or actually it's a JSON, but then we just do the whole processing and we run all the prompts. So we run these prompts against the GPT um, OpenAI API. 
-hmm. And then it generates all the assets we need. We store them on our database and then you see them in your uh, browser. That's basically the magic. Okay. So what ChatGPT OpenAI is getting is the transcription document that you get from the first service. So OpenAI is not getting the MP3, correct? It's just getting the transcript that you generated from the first service, right? Exactly. And actually, it's it's a little bit more complex than that because uh, at least the first versions or the GPT-3 and GPT-3.5, it actually has a limit. So a limit of characters or tokens, as they call it, that, that you can input, right? I'm, I'm laughing a little bit because I ran into that exact problem when I was trying to yeah. generate some stuff. I, wanted, I had the same idea. I was like, ooh, I have a transcript of my podcast. I wonder if I could just put <laughs> that whole thing in chat GPT and tell it to give me a summary. And I hit the character limit immediately. And I was like, oh, I guess I can't unless I pay a lot of money or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Ned, I, I have to admit, so... When we were first building our prototype, I thought, okay, this is going to be easy. Now I just have to, I get the description. The description is kind of okay. It doesn't need to be amazing because GPT is so smart. And then I just have to send it. But then I was like, wait, there's a limit? And the limit is actually not, uh, especially for, uh, now for GPT-4, it's, it's better, but we are still not using it. I think it's, it's around, what, 4,000 tokens, which is like 3,500 words or something so you know an audio an audio transcription can be quite long so there was a lot of work on okay we need to split this into chunks and there's a a lot of logic that we had to implement from our side so that it actually works with the open ai gpt api so we have to do this magic we have to split it we have to send it and then we have to process all the information the OpenAI returns and then gather everything together and then send it to our clients. So yeah, there's a little bit of logic there. <laughs> sure. Yeah. How are you uh, breaking the transcript up to feed it, ch- I guess, chunks of information to OpenAI instead of the whole thing all at once? It's, it's actually it's not a lot into that. So it's basically... Uh, we know the maximum we can give. Mm-hmm. So the tricky thing is you need the, the limit of tokens is calculated by your prompt plus the response. So that's a bit tricky, right? Because you need to predict how long the response will be. Wow. Because sometimes what GPT will do, if you just ask for more than what you have, GPT will just stop generating. I don't know if it ever happened to you, but it happened to us quite often. So it just generating and then suddenly it just stops in the middle of the sentence, whatever. You're like, ah, sorry, you have no more tokens. I yep. won't continue. So the logic is more towards, okay, how much can we give in each chunk so that it just doesn't go over the limit? Uh, and that's basically what you do. We have some calculations um, that we do in the backend that kind of measures and splits and the chunks are splitted uh, based on the, the limit of, of tokens we can give. Okay. And, you know, you have multiple customers that are all using this at once. Uh, do you have like a queue or something where you're slowly sending these jobs over? Because I'm assuming it's more of a batch job kind of process. Here's, mm-hmm. 
here's one job to run and I'll wait till this one finishes so you don't get a rate limit or, or something along those lines. So is that what you have in place is some sort of queue or, or, uh, or batch? No, that's a great question as well. Uh, because again, when we first started, I thought, okay, you know, it's an API. It's, they have a lot of money. This is probably going to work really well. I just have to send it and, and it works. And then suddenly I started, once the pod squeeze started to have more, um, more traffic, I started to see a bunch of people complaining that it was not generating. And I was like, but what's happening? It's probably something from my end. So I opened the logs and saw that there was this um, rate limit that actually was coming from OpenAI API. So I didn't even know that there was this limit. So I said, okay, wait, let me quickly search. And then I figured out, yes, there is actually a limit and you cannot just simply start bombarding the API with a lot of requests. Um, so actually they, OpenAI itself, they have a cookbook where they explain how you should, end, how you should handle these uh, limits. Uh, <laughs> no, what I normally do is just retries uh, with the sleep. So sleep a little bit, do a retry. If it doesn't work, sleep a little bit again, do a retry until um, our, and by the way, that's one of the problems with the GCP functions, it expires as well. So you have a maximum of nine minutes that you can run. If you run for more than uh, nine minutes, it actually times out. Okay. So if not in most cases, it won't time out. So in most cases, what we do is for every new request, there's a new function that is triggered. And this can be, it's very scalable. You don't need to allocate an, a new node like you have to do it with Kubernetes or whatever. It just, there's some magic. I, I don't know how they manage it, but for each new functions, it's the magic of serverless. They just start, you know, booting up new instances, I guess. I don't know. And I just wait. And most of the times it works. Um, but then there's also some logic that needs to be done uh, once we reach the timeout and we still didn't get the results. Well, how, how long is long when you say you're waiting? Because when I submitted a file, it seemed like it kicked off immediately. Or maybe that was just the, the, the front end UI kind of lying to me, where there was a progress bar. It looked like something was happening, but maybe you were actually queuing in the background. I don't know. Oh, well, I, maybe I shouldn't say this, but yeah, that, that progress bar, <laughs> that progress bar is it's a little bit far. It's not very accurate. <laughs> Let's just say it like that. Um, no, so it, it triggers right away. So once you once you start the job, it's, it triggers uh, triggers right away. Um, the progress bar is not accurate at all. It's based on our experience. So it, it really depends, first of all, on how big your audio file is, right? So the bigger the transcription your audio file generates, um, the more requests we'll need to do to the OpenAI. So it, it's, uh, it, the longer it takes. So I, if it's a short episode, normally it's really fast and it will take you... I guess if it's around up to like 30 to 40 minutes, it will take maybe, I don't know, between like five minutes around that to generate all the assets. Yeah. Uh, if it's a longer file, it might take a little bit more. And then you also have the problem that sometimes a lot of people are using OpenAI API and they, they get really slow. And there are some outages uh, at times as well. And then it can take up to 10 minutes, 15 minutes. So what we do then is just, we just say in the UI that, hey, this is taking more than we were expecting. We'll just email you once it's done. Mm -hmm. And people normally, they they are not too much in a hurry and then 
they accept that. Now, right. in, in my workflow, the way that would go is uh, for production podcasts, if I'm wanting to use those assets to help publish a show, I'm going to send an, M- an MP3 in this case and uh, let it get read. And it's waiting for production. I'm actually building all of the assets to actually publish the show. And so I got time. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't need it right that second. You know, maybe I'm in a hurry some days, but most of the time it's going to be if it takes 15 minutes, half an hour, whatever. That's great. Then I'll once it once I get the email, I'll be like, okay, yeah. cool. Let's mm-hmm. now let's build the, the landing page for the show and get it published and all that stuff. It'd be good to go. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the feedback we normally get from our clients. Uh, sometimes when there's problems and um, it seems that it's still loading, but actually just failed in the backend. Uh, then of course they they complain, but normally they complain after hours. They'll be like, "Hey, I'm waiting for five hours. Uh, why is it taking so long?" You're like, what? "You actually wait for five hours?" <laughs> so this kind of gives us you know, the impression that it's okay uh, for people to wait even an hour or so. So it's not something that is crucial. It's time, or it's not crucial to be extremely fast as long as we deliver the results and we explain what's happening and the results are good. Yeah. Okay, so you go through the, we generate a transcript and then you use the transcript to feed uh, OpenAI, ChatGPT, to get all these other artifacts. So how are you doing the prompting for that? Is that like uh, you feed prompts into an API call to uh, get back the different assets that you're looking for? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. Mm -hmm. And it was a lot of work. So this is where the, you know, this new job that is popping up, which is uh, whatever, like, prompt engineering or prompt designer, <laughs> you know, everyone is a prompt designer nowadays, but it's, it's, it's true. It, it took us a lot of time to tune and find the right prompts for each asset. So the right prompt to, to deliver the short post or the right prompt to the timestamps. If you go and see the timestamps, now they actually work most of the time that they are good, but it took so much time to get the, the right prompt to get the timestamps exactly how people wanted. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of time of just, you know, Joe and I, so my co-founder and I, we are just testing prompts. But yeah, in oper- in the, the logic or in the application, we basically send the prompt to, um, as a request, you know, in our uh, API request. And it's, it's very similar to what you do in your uh, UI with ChatGPT. You're implying something very interesting here, which is nuance matters and details in the prompt matter. Uh, when you'd think, cause kind of, you know, if you're just at the Google search engine or a lot of the other search engines, you put in stuff and you make some changes and it kind of doesn't make much difference in the results you get back. What you're saying here is it took us a lot of time to get the prompts right. And that made a huge difference in the results. And so the whole joke yeah. about prompt designer, prompt engineer, that's actually kind of a thing. You really do know how to, you need to know how to engage the AI and prompt it in such a way that you get back the results that you're looking for. That all makes a difference. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Um, I would also say though, Ethan, that for Google, you also need to learn. And I think we as developers, at least I said that 90% of my job is knowing how to Google now is knowing how to GPT, I guess. Um, but we tend to, we need to learn what keywords to use, right? So that we can get the right results and then how to filter through the results. Uh, and I think it's exactly the same with chat GPT. Of course, it's easier, I think, with chat GPT because you can just use natural language. Uh, well, with Google as well, kind of, but chat GPT, you can just then reiterate and make questions about the results. Uh, but there's still a learning curve and there's still, 
yeah, the prompt designing is definitely something that one can learn and one can get better at. I so related to the prompt design, uh, one of the things that you can do in Chat GPT is you can have follow up questions. You can see what it spits out. Mm-hmm. And you can go, oh, well, that's not quite what I meant. Let's try to refine it. Uh, but when you're working with the API and this is all part of a function, it sounds like it's a one shot deal. I send you the prompt and then I'm going to take whatever you give me back and give that to the the end user. Is that kind of the, the setup you have today? Well, it is. But with API, you can actually do both. Um, so I believe that you can, I, I've never done it, but you can just open a WebSocket and and basically interact with the results of something like this. Um, maybe I'm just... Uh, I see uh, Ned nodding. Well, I think I saw something along those lines where someone set it up for two LLMs to talk to each other by using that. Right. Yeah. Have them like have a conversation. (laughs) So yeah. Yeah. You can do that. And and there's a a lot of people actually creating better UIs for ChatGPT. One one maker from our indie hackers community, um, Tony Dean, he has done. I think it's called type minds, but I'm not entirely sure. So yeah, it's possible to basically using the API, recreate the whole um, GPT UI. In our case, we don't do that. In our case, we do exactly what you just mentioned. So um, we just generate one single prompt. We send it to the API, we, we get the results. And then if you want, because when you go, when you get the results, you can actually uh, edit them or personalize them using GPT. And what we do is basically we just get the, um, the results, we append the prompt, and we send everything together to the API. Okay, that makes sense. And then when I'm seeing the refine your uh, results, is that uh, a more of an interactive session that's happening with chat GPT? If I'm, you know, when I'm working in the UI and I get my results back and there's that refine button, is mm-hmm. that... That's just sending my updated request prompt along with the, what exactly. it already generated for it me. Is. It is. But to be honest, it would be cool maybe to, in that specific case, to use the WebSocket because then you could just interact and see it writing it down like you see in, in the ChatGPT UI. So I think it would be a cooler experience for the user because now you basically waited, you see the loading, and then you get... You, the result the um, all at once mm-hmm. maybe it would be cooler to actually see it you know writing it down like um like the ui of ChatGPT, but yeah it's not it's not super relevant for for the use case gotcha so what happens tiago if pod squeeze really takes off uh you know you get a lot of users a lot of interest are you going to need a fundamental architecture change from what you described in order to scale it up probably <laughs> 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 to be honest it, it's it's something that I haven't thought too much about. Um, again, I do. I do think that most likely we'll need to move towards a cheaper database. It seems because, um, yeah, I, I, unless I can find a way to reduce a little bit the um, all the the network communication, probably we'll have to change that. The Google Functions actually, I still don't know. I, I don't know if you have an opinion on this. I don't know if there's anyone actually using full-scale, big product with millions of users using simply Google Functions. Maybe it just gets too costly. But in terms of usage itself, 
I don't know if I'll get any limits. Do you think there will be a limit with the with Google Functions? Anecdotally around functions is that the cold start time is a is a cost in terms of time loss. And right. the overall cost of running it versus having dedicated compute that's on. But that depends on if you're getting enough workload demand that it makes sense to have some compute nodes constantly running and just pulling jobs off the job queue and executing them, then mm-hmm. it might make more sense to move to more of a virtual machine or even a Kubernetes type model where you can kind of right. in packing for your various services to make sure they're allocated appropriately. But by the same token, we've talked to, um, what's his name? Matt Butcher from Fermion. And they're doing this like almost zero startup t- type thing, a uh, zero startup time thing with uh, WebAssembly. Yeah. And there's there's another possible avenue that you could go down. And I don't even know what the cost model <laughs> that looks like. Yeah. I don't think anybody does yet. So I, I think, um, you know, just from my experience talking to startups, you start with what works and then you just take a look around the industry when you're ready to grow. Uh, if it gets Exactly. Yeah. So one thing for sure, if, so I'm the only developer, right? But the moment we hire another developer, I think a lot of, a lot of things will have to change, right? Uh, I am, I don't want to show you my code <laughs> because <laughs> the, the issue with, with Google functions is that again, like you have everything in, in basically the main, you know, it's, it's, it's not super organized. Uh, there's no framework. There's nothing like that. So I do believe that if we want to scale this up and actually have a team, we either have to split into more functions and each function can only have one simple purpose or we will have to go towards something that where you can actually host uh, something like Spring Boot or Flask or and, and for that, maybe a VM or even Kubernetes could be a better option. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that the way you answered the scaling question was not about can functions handle it. It was about is the economic model correct? Because uh, it sounds yeah. like you're worried <laughs> if you start getting into hundreds of thousands or millions of requests, then the cost might not the cost model might not be there, and you might have to rethink it in terms of of pricing. Yeah, that's my entrepreneurial side, you know, my business side uh, speaking. Now I'm not, as I said, I'm not a only a developer anymore. There's like multiple little hats or personas inside of my head. And part of me thinks, okay, I want to make this fast. I want to make this scalable. I want to make this cool, easy to read. Another part thinks I want to make money. Uh, and I just want to iterate fast and, and make sure that this uh, startup keeps flying and doesn't crash. So uh, yeah, I, I kind, of, kind of give you these two options. Okay, I know maybe probably many wise would be the reason why we will end up changing before scalability because the, even the cold start problem, I don't see it being a, a, an issue. At least people just, they don't complain too much about it. They don't complain and they don't say, Hey, it's too, super slow. Hey, it's, it takes really long time to load. So I don't know if, if that will be a main reason for me to change, you know? I mean, even if you were cold start and it took a few seconds to warm up because of what the product is that you're sending out the door, a, you know, a cold start that's that slow, it just doesn't add that much time to the overall process where that, uh, that's that big of a deal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, actually, I don't know, but I think also that Google is probably smart around that. And if they know that the specific function is being called whatever, n times per minute, 
they will keep it warm. <laughs> I don't know. Probably. Uh, I don't know. Well, yeah, we understand that that's what's going on on the back end. Yeah. 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 So even better, you know, like it's uh, it's always there, warm, fast, works well so far. Seems to be scalable. Yeah. Let's see. Let's see. <laughs> well, okay. So one more architecture kind of question for your operational question, really, Tiago. It's about observability. How do you know when things are going well with Pod Squeeze, and and what are you monitoring to know that things are going well or things are going badly? So first of all, we hear the clients complain. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's one of the reasons. Oh no, yeah. So again, I've worked in in bigger companies, and we are definitely not using these kind of methods. Um, I can tell you that for logging, I use GCP functions loggings. So everything you print goes to STD out, and you can see it. So if there's an issue, if there's some problem popping up, if I just did a release, I just go to the functions, I check the logs, and I see if I see any exception or any problem or any errors. Um, you can also just filter for errors and uh, and you'll see if something pops up. I I do not have any dashboards, to be honest, um, There's at no the status.podsqueeze.com where I can go and see pretty green lights. <laughs> no, <laughs> unfortunately not. Well, this is this is a typical early stage project. It sounds like then you've got uh, we, you've really got almost nothing. I mean, you're reacting to you said standard out, so you're just talking about more or less syslog messages. This is entries that are being logged along the way that you can track and exactly. see if there's any abnormalities. And then, of course, mm -hmm. all your users are the canary in the coal mine. Hey, Tiago, I tried to do a thing and it's broken. What's going on, man? And then you're like, oh, I don't know. Yeah. Let me check. So, okay. So in in fairness, right, early stage startup, indie hacker, do you have a plan to put up, I don't know, uh, Prometheus, Grafana, something where you're monitoring certain metrics to make sure that um, things are at least up and running? I didn't think about implementing any of that. Um, if I do, I, I probably would first investigate to see what Google already has in place. Because mm -hmm. again, I'm not the it's serverless. I'm not the one actually managing the server. So yeah, right. I don't know if there's anything I can do regards to latency or uh, yeah, the only thing I can actually control is the STD out and the errors that my application is throwing, right? I guess putting my ops hat on, I would look at it like, well, what if the GCP function starts performing slowly or starts rejecting my request to run now and again and I'd want to get some some flagging on that some insight into that and know about it before before my users flag me or before Google's status page alerts me that in this region we have are having a problem with functions you know kind of a thing but it's also true that 99.9x percent .9 of the time it just works and so you don't really have to worry about it and so for me observability has tended to be as much as I love observability and monitoring and all that kind of stuff low on the list of things to do especially when you got other things you're trying to get done um but i i was curious so you're yeah <laughs> although it's a little grimmer than i thought diago i mean you're at the standpoint of <laughs> almost nothing for your monitoring <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah uh yeah i'm sure that a lot of people are judging me at the moment <laughs> <laughs> you're not the not only a, one my friend the judgment free yeah. zone you know that's right, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah i could Good to hear that. To be honest, I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't even think too much about it, to be honest. I, uh, even though there was a time where I would be the one actually setting up Prometheus, setting up Grafana's in, in all the services uh, for my own startup, I didn't do any of that uh, so far.
I do have the alerts for the OpenAI API because they do have a lot of outages and most of our problems come from their side actually. Mm. So um, I get a notification every time there's a outage or something and I, I just go and, and check it out. A lot of the checks are also basically, let's go to pod squeeze and let's run and let's see if it works. <laughs> and and also like always checking out the STD out and, and to see the logging of my application, if everything is working fine, if there's any issue with that. Um, but yeah, that's, that's basically it. I Unfortunately, I don't have uh, a lot of knowledge to share regarding observability and uh, Google functions. No problem. No problem at all. Tiago, this has been a fantastic discussion, exactly what I was hoping for, where we got a peek into your world, uh, how you're using different cloud services to build this application and, uh, and get it done in a hurry, uh, even if you're not paying attention to whether or not it's working. <laughs> so <laughs> how can people follow you on the internet, Tiago? Are you on Twitter, LinkedIn? You got a blog, anything like that? I keep it engine if it's working. Let me, <laughs> uh, let me just say so that people won't just go away and say, hey, but you know, I, I do keep uh, an eye to see if it's working and everything. Yeah, latency and these other metrics are for sure not the my main focus, but if it's working and if there's problems and we're always testing the application to make sure that our clients do get the, the service that they are paying for. Uh, but um, yeah, so from to reach out to me, I normally, so I... I'm quite big on Twitter. That's my main social or my only uh, social media, the social platform that I use. And uh, people can follow me at WBTiago. And uh, they can also chat with me on PodSqueeze support chat. <laughs> oh, right. That's, that's a Slack group? Uh, no, it's basically a plugin that we use. It uses Crisp and you can just go to podsqueeze.com and you'll see a chat and it's a user support chat. Uh, oh, nice. Yeah, people can just... The best way would be WB Tiago on Twitter. You can DM me, you can tweet at me, and I'm always there checking everything out and answering questions. So yeah, if people are, want to know more about PodSqueeze, uh, that's where they can find me. Very good. Thank you very much, Tiago, for spending time with us today on Day 2 Cloud. And virtual high fives to you out there listening all the way to the end. For tuning in, you're an awesome human. If you have suggestions for future shows, we would love to hear them. You can hit Ned and I up on Twitter at Day 2 Cloud Show. Or if you're not a Twitter person, fill out the request form on day2cloud.io. You just go there and there's a menu bar at the top and it says request. And you can hit that button and send us your content request. And we'll see how quickly we can find a subject matter expert and talk all about it on a future episode. By the way, did you know that you don't have to scream into the technology void alone? The, the Packet Pushers Podcast Network, we have a free Slack group that is open to everybody. You can visit packetpushers.net slash slack and join. It is a marketing free zone for engineers to chat and compare notes and tell war stories and solve problems together. Again, packetpushers.net slash slack. There's, I don't know, about 2,500 people globally that are in the general in there. Uh, great, knowledgeable bunch of folks that are sharing information one with another. So hop on in and join the discussion. Until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.